You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. A big diplomatic week for the NATO alliance, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and President Biden. We have a lot to cover, so let's bring in diplomacy and national security correspondent for The Washington Post, Missy Ryan. Missy, welcome back to First Look. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, President Biden said at the summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, that NATO is stronger and more united than ever. Is he right? What were the big takeaways from this week's NATO summit? Yeah, well, this summit really was a test of NATO's unity and its ability to sustain cohesion a year and a half into President Putin's uh, war in Ukraine. And I think it was a pretty good showing from a NATO perspective. The member states were able to come together and bridge divisions at the 11th hour, convincing Turkey and Hungary to uh, basically take the steps needed to cement Sweden's entry into NATO, making Sweden the 32nd member of the alliance. And that's a very big deal because that means that there are now two new members of NATO, Finland and Sweden, that have very strong militaries, and it sends a powerful message to Putin that the West is not going to uh, fracture um, uh, as uh, the economic and political strains of the war continue. At the same time, the summit was also a reminder of the abiding differences that exist within the alliance, especially when it comes to Ukraine's future uh, with the with the alliance. What came out was not what some members had hoped, which was a formal invitation for NATO to join uh, for excuse me, for Ukraine to join NATO, but rather a restatement of the fact that Ukraine will eventually join the alliance after the war is concluded. And that was a real disappointment for some of the, the eastern flank, the frontline states that thought it was important for faster steps to be taken for Ukraine. And it also was a huge disappointment for the Ukrainian government, um, even though they had sort of put a brave face on it. I think really what they had been hoping for was a more clear and near term path to becoming a member of NATO. And of course, that would carry with it um, a, an important mutual defense clause. Uh, a lot in that answer that I, I want to dive into, most notably, uh, the Post reported that the Biden administration was annoyed by an angry tweet from President Zelensky complaining about the slow pace for Ukraine's admission to NATO. What's the backstory there? Was, was this a deliberate strategy by Zelensky and did it work? I mean, I don't think so. You know, the Ukrainian government since the beginning of the war has taken what has been a very successful um, sort of public relations approach, which is that they are um, very transparent with the things that they want from the West. Um, and they are also very transparent when they are angry about the things they're not getting. You know, their perspective is, you know, we're here sacrificing our people for a war that, you know, has really importance for the entire um, uh, democratic community and the West. Um, and so it's not atypical, the fact that Zelensky was very critical at the beginning of the summit. Um, and there, you know, it also illustrates the sort of, uh, you know, again, 11th hour behind the scenes to and fro that happens in um, uh, cobbling together these, these diplomatic communiques. But also, you know, at the end of the day, the, the um, member states came together for this planned statement, which was, you know, we will welcome Ukraine into NATO when the war is ended. And, you know, on one hand, it is a strong um, 
reiteration of the intent and the what you know NATO calls the open door policy. But on the other hand, there's no uh, no even suggestion of an end to this war in sight. So you know you can really um, ask hard questions. I think about the meaning of that statement, given that you know now we're a month into Ukraine's counteroffensive in an attempt to regain um, Russian controlled territory, and they've only made very small gains. Um, just to be clear, isn't it NATO policy? Leave aside Ukraine, just in general, NATO policy that. Folks can't be admitted if they are at war. Yes, there is um, a clause that says you have to be in control of you know all of your territory. And um, as a reminder to our viewers, uh, Russia holds now roughly a fifth of Ukraine's territory, Crimea, and areas in the east. Um, you know, but there have been debates internally about whether or not you could chart out a more specific path and say, you know, for example, within one year, we could um, outline steps that would allow us to get into to, um, NATO. There's also the precedent that occurred in um, with Germany, East Germany, West Germany, um, and the accession of West Germany um, uh, decades ago. And so there has been an internal debate about how far you can go, but clearly the Biden administration has struck a very conservative um, posture here. And what we hear from the White House is that President Biden is just not willing to entertain any steps or even committing to starting down a path that he believes could lead NATO um, into a direct conflict with Russia. Remember, Russia has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Right. And, and that is the key thing, that the, 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 uh, the foundation of the NATO alliance is an attack on one is an attack on all. And so if Ukraine comes into the alliance, everybody um, will be uh, would be obligated to come to its defense. Let's talk about the deal that was brokered for NATO, for Sweden to join NATO after Turkey and Hungary, but primarily Turkey dropped uh, its opposition. Uh, what were the behind the scenes maneuverings to make that happen? Yeah, you know, this has been now um, a process that has been going on for more than a year since Sweden announced that it would drop its decades-long policy of military non-alignment. Um, and for months, Turkey has a, has um, basically said that they were not going to agree to it because of what they describe as sort of a, a permissive policy on Kurdish militants or people that um, Ankara views as, as part of a um, terrorist group in in Turkey. And so, you know, Tur uh, Sweden took lots of steps. They altered their constitution, they passed new laws. Um, and um, still, Erdogan, President Erdogan, did not agree, um, said that more needed to be done. And that sort of um, suggested to a lot of people within the US government and outside that Turkey was trying to extract additional concessions that were unrelated to, to Sweden's accession. You know, Turkey for a long time has been seeking a deal to acquire um, F-16 fighter jets from the United States, um, and uh, that is opposed by many people in the U.S. Congress, or at least some powerful members of um, the Senate. And so, um, so far, there is no explicit um, green light for that deal, but uh, there may have been some assurances behind the scenes, and President Biden has, you know, again, sort of re restated his, his desire to help Turkey with that. I mean, it just shows the... Um, the deal making that can happen within um, within NATO um, at a moment when you know there's a lot of concern about telegraphing unity to Moscow um, because of the stakes in Ukraine. And, and on that point, real fast, last question: The NATO Secretary General said that um, Putin went to war against Ukraine to get less NATO, but quote, he's getting more NATO. Any indication 
about um, Russian President Vladimir Putin's reaction to NATO's expansion. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Kremlin has always criticized NATO enlargement. They see it as um, a threat to Russian security. You know, the accession of Finland, which was finalized in April, doubled the land border between Russia and NATO nations. So that's very significant. You know, the the um, eastward expansion of NATO was one of the main reasons that the that Russia cited in um, going to war in Ukraine. So, you know, but so far they haven't taken any actions. And from what I'm hearing from US officials, there's no suggestion that Putin will try to attack NATO. I think he knows what that would entail. Um, and so it just looks like, again, this very um, tense standoff, but one that so far looks fairly stable. Uh, yeah, with NATO, with, <laughs> I keep making that mistake, with Finland's ascension to NATO, um, it's an 830-mile border that Finland shares f shares with Russia um, with, with that expansion. I had one more question in mind, Missy, and then it just flew out of my head as I, <laughs> as I gave that little factoid. So I'm just going to quit while I'm ahead, unless you've got a last point, because we do have a little bit of extra time. If there's a last point you think sure. viewers should know. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that um, I found interesting in the in how this came together in the Lithuanian capital was the fact that the Biden administration sort of raised in a, in a new way, I think, the fact that they want to see um, domestic and political political and economic reforms um, from Ukraine um, in order for it to join NATO. And that is something that, you know, has been on the table as uh, Ukraine separately tries to join the European Union, which has a very um, uh, extensive um, set of uh, like membership criteria, essentially. And um, this really, I think, was was um, an indication of, you know, the Biden administration tried to um, put out, you know, reasons for its position, its conservative position, but also underscores um, as Ukraine confronts its own problems with corruption and sort of institutional weakness, the, the steps that the country will have to take at a really difficult moment when it's facing an existential threat, the non-military threats that, that Ukraine will have to, the challenges that it will have to face in terms of domestic reforms. Right. Corruption being the key word there. Missy Ryan, diplomatic and national security correspondent for The Washington Post, thank you for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post editor-at-large, Robert Kagan, and Washington Post contributing columnist, Professor Danielle Allen. Bob, Danielle, welcome back to First Look. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Good to be here. So Ukrainian, Ukrainian President Zelensky met with President Biden in Vilnius and, and began it by expressing gratitude. President Zelensky, listen. I want to thank to all Americans who understand that it's more than 43 billion for today. It's big support. And I understand that it's all your money, but, but you have to know that you spend this money for, for not, not just for fighting. You spend this money for our lives. And uh, I think that we save the, the lives for, for, for Europe and for, for all the world. And so, Danielle, how does what Zelensky said fit into your warnings about democracies being under threat globally? Can democracy survive if it fails in Ukraine? Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's such a powerful 
message when President Zelensky communicates those words of thanks. And he really is driving home an important point. There is a struggle around the globe between democracy and authoritarianism. And the front line is Ukraine and Russia. We saw the work of Russia here at home during the 2016 election when Russian Facebook groups were, for example, creating counter protests on opposite sides of the street in Houston, bringing Americans into direct conflict with each other. Russia is not the only actor on the world stage that is seeking to undermine the capacity of democracies. There are also sort of more grassroots networks, um, typically on the far right, that are also seeking to undermine democratic states. So there is a really important job for all of us to do who love democracy um, to protect that front line um, in Ukraine, to help Ukraine really win that war, and to think about what we can do to strengthen democracy at home, um, really for the cause of freedom on the planet. Right, and we're gonna get to strengthening democracy at home in a moment. Bob, I would love to get your, your reaction to President, what President Zelensky had to say. Well, it, it, you know, it, it, it's his job to get everything he possibly can for his country. I mean, they are under assault. They are being killed on a daily basis. They're at war with uh, what we used to regard as a superpower. And so it would be, you know, he's doing what he needs to do for the Ukrainian people. And obviously the rest of the world also has to make its own judgments on the best on the basis of what uh, everyone perceives as their interests also. But, uh, you know, and, and he's also right uh, to say that this is not just a battle over Ukraine, uh, that if uh, Putin were to succeed in Ukraine and, and actually uh, take over, uh, we would be, uh, you know, close to returning to the situation uh, that we had with the Soviet Union, where they are in the heart of Europe. Ukraine is a very, as it turns out, is a very critical strategic uh, place because it's 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 a large country and it brings. If Russia were to control Ukraine, it would. You, we talked about the border with Finland, uh, but uh, but uh, Russia would be sort of back moving in toward the center of Europe. And I think that most of the reason the Eastern European countries are are worried is they don't think that Ukraine would be the end of uh, Putin's ambitions ultimately. So so in that sense, I think uh, Zelensky is right. He is fighting. The Ukrainian people are fighting for, for the rest of us as well. Bob, let me stick with you, because in your most recent book, which came out earlier this year entitled The Ghosts at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941, you made a point about what you called the American trap when other countries underestimated what a united America could accomplish. Did Vladimir Putin underestimate America's resolve in defending Ukraine? Well, certainly, and, and part of the problem is that I think the United States sent signals over several years, beginning with the uh, Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008, uh, that we were very ambivalent, to say the least, about thing, whatever Russia did in what the Russians call their near abroad, which are the, the, the number of countries that uh, used to be part of the Soviet Union, but which are now in a kind of no man's land between NATO and Russia. And, and for years, uh, Putin has been probing to see what the United States would do. And I think that the response of the first of the Bush administration to uh, the invasion of Georgia and then uh, the response of the Obama administration to the seizure of Crimea uh, gave Putin a, a reason to believe that that he could probably get away with this. Now he failed militarily in Ukraine, uh, which is sort of it was not anticipated. But I don't think there's any question that he felt that it was uh, at least a relatively permissive environment based on the signals that we sent 
uh, over the past few years. Mm -hmm. and, and so, Danielle, let's pick up your Strengthening Democracy at Home uh, comment earlier. Um, you wrote a piece in the Post recently about a declining sense of pride in being American from one generation to the next. Why does this concern you? Well, at the end of the day, uh, democracy, in order to be healthy at home and strong abroad, does depend on the bonds within its citizenry. And it depends on a commitment of the people. And I think this um, case with Ukraine makes that very clear. You know, we have, as a country, provided more than $40 billion to Ukraine. That is a huge draw on our shared treasury, our national purse. And to sustain that, we have to understand ourselves in some kind of common um, sort of purpose, some common common effort um, there. That common effort, again, depends on those, those those bonds among us. So we have seen generational decline in terms of the sense of commitment that people have both to the idea of democracy in this country and specifically to this question of, of whether one feels proud to be an American. So that's a real red alert, really, about um, our health as a society and important for us to figure out how to reverse. You know, let me stick with you on this, Danielle, because listening to your answer, I was thinking to what happened last night on Capitol Hill um, as Republicans, as the House voted on the NDAA, the must-pass defense authorization bill, and many amendments that failed, I'm gonna say that failed, but there were many amendments proposed by House Republicans to quote unquote, defund Ukraine, all aspects of America's effort to defend Ukraine. How, how does that factor into your thinking about you know, strengthening democracy here at home? Well, you know, I think we are watching a very unusual and interesting situation in our country where on the ground, the American people actually often has a lot of shared opinion about things we should do. So when you look at state level politics, state level ballot propositions, for instance, um, we can often see Americans coming to supermajority agreement about a policy choice. So mm -hmm. we see that for example, the war on drugs with the passage of legalization laws where, you know, upwards of two thirds of the voters of both parties will support that or, um, you know, ballot propositions around things like the right to repair for small auto shops. So there's a long list of ballot propositions at the state level that win supermajority support. But then when we look at our national politics, we look, you know, bitterly opposed, 50-50, totally polarized. And so that's really, I think, our challenge. How can we take what's you know, sort of fractured supermajority in our national politics and really activate, re reanimate that sort of supermajority that we see on the ground in the state level? So I watch that sort of decision in Congress and I see our parties at work, that is to say the organizational form of our parties, um, locked in a bitter power struggle, literally as organizations trying to control the levers of government, I don't actually see the American people locked in that struggle. And so that for me is our puzzle. How can we get the American people sort of back in the driver's seat as opposed to the actual organizational structures of our parties? That's interesting. Bob, what do you make of that? Well, I, I mean, that's certainly true. I, actually, I have to say, I think that's overly optimistic about the state of the American people. Um, you know, as it happens, I think there are tens of millions of Americans who really are in rebellion against the American liberal democratic system, the system that the founders created. Uh, they don't believe in liberal values. They don't believe in individual rights. Many Americans believe 
that the United States was supposed to be a Christian nation, that the founders uh, believed that they were founding a Christian nation, which is not true. Uh, Americans are, many Americans are in complete denial about the role of race in our history. So, I, I, you know, I wish it were just a matter of uh, getting everybody together, but I think we are facing some very severe divisions in this country over whether we really want to pursue uh, the sort of founders experiment. And this isn't the first time in our country that we've faced that challenge, but I think that is the challenge. I think that's what this next, the 2024 election is gonna be about to a large extent. Bob, I want you to do something that um, it just occurred to me needs to be explained. When, when we're talking about things like this, people talk about you know the democratic order, or as you just said, liberal values. To 21st century American ears, those two words have one meaning. But when you say defending liberal values, define liberal. Yeah, and that, that is unfortunately an area of great confusion, which by the way, both the left and right are responsible right. for. But but liberals liberalism to me is what is what this is what the is what the founders created, a system that focused on the rights of the individual. Uh, against the state, against the community. Uh, the United States is uh, got many flaws, but it's the first uh, country in history to try to ground a government on the principle that the rights of the individual are what matters, not the needs of the state. Um, and also, very importantly, to declare that all people are created equal and have the same uh, rights and need to have those rights respected. The universalist element of liberalism is also a critical factor. So people associate liberalism with big spending or with a certain kind of foreign policy, but I think that's a mistake. The, the core of liberalism is, is the protection of individual rights. Danielle? The founders' natural rights. Yeah. Right, right. Danielle, it, it, does Bob, Bob has it right? That definition, broad definition of liberal. Uh, yeah, definitely Bob has it right. I mean, there's more to be said there. I'm also I'm going to pick up one point Bob said um, previously and then also respond on the liberalism point. Um, so Bob made the point, I said we've got to get that supermajority of Americans who can come together for a shared purpose, get them back in the, the steering um, seat. Um, and Bob said, no, no, we're, we're more divided than that. And I just wanted to to say actually both things can be true at the same time. That is a supermajority means 66, 70% of the people. That does leave 30% who are not participating <laughs> in that supermajority vision. And I think Bob's exactly right. What we need is a supermajority supporting what I would say, you know, constitutional democracy. Those are liberal values in the sense Bob means. And what does that mean exactly? It is that protection of basic rights, that commitment to universal inclusion, universal access to rights, the tricky thing is when liberalism was invented in the 18th century, people weren't ready to share power across all different segments of society. So we're now at a point in the 21st century where liberalism does also have to be about power sharing. Everybody really has to participate. That universal inclusion needs to be a bright line definition for what it means to support constitutional democracy. And part of that is civic education, having the, having the population understand um, the role of government, how government was formed, this nation's history. And right now, not only do we see a gap in education among school children, but we're seeing that gap among adults. And so how do we, how do we bridge that gap, Bob? How do we um, ensure that civic education is something that's shared across ages? 
I, I don't know. I mean, our, our, our educational system is, is I, I'm not the first person to suggest that it's not in the greatest of shape in many respects. So I don't really know what the answer to how to solve that problem is. But what I would say is uh, it's very important. And, and I agree with Danielle that there is a potential majority out there. But that in order to, for that majority to exercise the influence that we need it to influence, uh, exercise, you know, Republicans who are not simply utterly devoted to Trump need to be willing to break from the party temporarily because the party is controlled by Trump. So if they don't uh, do that, uh, we're, we're, we're not going to make any progress. And I would say, getting back to the civic education point, right now, the most important civic education is that Donald Trump should lose in 2024 and the Republican Party should suffer a disastrous defeat based on where it has uh, taken itself. And, and the response to that would be a public education service. That, that, that's what I view right now. If the Republican Party can remain a viable party in the form that it is now, which is fundamentally anti-liberal and anti-democratic, then to talk about educating the citizenry, I think, uh, is, is a nice idea, but, but it's not going to save us from the crisis that I think is going to hit us in 2024. Danielle, I'll give you the last word on this. Well, you know, I'm a real believer in civic education, and I do actually think that there's a lot we could do fast by reconnecting young people to our constitutional democracy. It's funny, we had the crisis in the middle of the 20th century of the Cold War, and that yielded very significant educational investments in STEM education. We were racing to you know, beat Germany and securing the atom bomb and then racing about space and nuclear power and the like. And so we reached a point as of a couple of years ago where we are investing $50 per kid per year in STEM education and only five cents per kid per year in civic education. So I think we're in a similar kind of crisis moment and we've got to get that investment in civic education up on par with our investments in STEM education. And, and okay, you can you can get those investments, but what about the other movement that's happening around the country? And that is this denial of of history, banning books, putting laws on the uh, uh, on the books that ban quote unquote critical race theory. How how can how can we achieve the goal that you're talking about, Danielle, when you've got an active effort to thwart that? Well, you know, again, one has to, there's politics and then there's education, all right? And so a lot of that that you just described is politics. And the truth of the matter is educators can keep on about their business even while politicians are doing crazy stuff. And there is a national network of educators, cross-ideological network of educators, gathered around a project called Educating for American Democracy. And we have developed a roadmap, a path forward, and people are building out implementations in states across the country. We're keeping our heads down, doing what educators do, which is thinking hard about what kids need, bringing the best of our intellectual resources to bear in support of kids, and just getting the work done. And you know, we believe if we do good work, its value will show, and that in itself will start to change the dynamic. I am going to light a candle and pray for you, for, for, for you and your efforts. <laughs> Professor Danielle Allen, Robert Kagan, thank you very much for coming back to First Look. We got to go. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Good to thank see you, you Jonathan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.